support and affirm and encourage them so that the, the, the church does not simply mirror the, the secular world and, you know, in denigrating men today. Welcome, everyone, to Reclamation, a Be Emboldened initiative. I am Naomi, the founder and executive director here at BE, and we exist for those impacted by spiritual abuse by providing support for the prevention of victimization and re-victimization. We desire to create a safe place for people to ask the hard questions and to heal. Today, I'm talking with Professor Nancy Piercy about the topic of masculinity, which is a messy topic in general, if I may say so but can present as a unique kind of mess for those within the spiritual abuse context. So I'm so excited to have her here to talk about this with us. Professor Piercy is the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, as well as Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. Her books have been translated into 19 languages. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University, she has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And I said that without messing it up. <laughs> and I have to agree, Nancy, because I have been following along with you for quite a few years at this point, and I have been so blessed by your work. My husband is also a huge fan, so he's kind of geeking out in the other room right now, probably wishing <laughs> that he was in here getting to meet you. And then, of course, I've been able to meet your good friend, Mary Jo Sharp, and she talks beautifully about you. And so I'm like, oh, so it's just an honor to have you here. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And I've enjoyed perusing your website and seeing the good work you do. So I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Well, let's just jump right in. So the data you relayed in the beginning of your book really surprised me and, and in a good way. So as it turns out, everyone, Christian couples are not matching the 50% divorce rate of society at large, as many of us have previously, previously heard, including myself. So would you please start us off by expounding on this and sharing the other kind of good news statistics that you open up with in your book? Yeah, I do start with the good news. And by the way, that was uh, an intentional decision because I used to have it at the end, right? You logically you present the problem and then you present the solution but people would get so discouraged uh, as I, I did reading groups and classes on the manuscript and people would get so discouraged by the problems that, that they they hardly wanted to reach the solution so I had to put it at the beginning um, because obviously we know that Christian men are often considered to be the worst examples of toxic masculinity. They're held up as exhibit A. It was very easy for my book to just do a quick Google search and find lots of quotes, but I'll, I'll give you just one. So the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement, said it this way. She said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And so the researchers were looking at these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but what's the data? And so researchers, I'm talking about psych psychologists and sociologists, did the studies. And so in my book, I cite some dozen studies or so um, that all found out that the, the media narrative is actually totally wrong, that in fact, evangelical men who are committed to their faith, who attend church regularly, actually test out as the highest, as the best in terms of being loving and engaged husbands and fathers. By the way, one of the pushbacks I often get is, well, of course their wives said they were happy, their husband's sitting right there. But that's not true. They, they were The wives were interviewed separately. And so the wives themselves are reporting the highest level of happiness with their husband's expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend more time than any other group with their children, both in terms of shared activities like sports and church youth group, and in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time and enforcing bedtime. Evangelicals, evangelical couples divorce at the lowest rate, which is what you just mentioned, contrary to our expectations. 
And the real surprise was they have the lowest rates of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. And so this is totally contrary to the normal media stereotypes. And I have to tell you, it's it's not out there in the public yet. I had to go digging in the academic literature to find this. And this was really the reason I wanted to write the book. I said, we've got to get that out. This information, you know, into the church and into the public square. Let me actually read you a quote, because sometimes a quote really crystallizes it. This is uh, from a sociologist named Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia, and he's considered one of the top marriage researchers in the country. And to give you a sense of his status, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is a, a quote from the New York Times. He says, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. By the way, they focus on the wives, of course, because the assumption is that if you believe in any form of male headship, that will turn men into overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs. But the happiest wives in all America are religious conservatives, fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And then he goes on to say, this is actually my favorite part. He turns to his fellow sociologists, who of course are mostly secular, and he says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So the bottom line is that Christians actually do have a very practical answer to, to reconciling the sexes, as I put it in the subtitle of my book. And it's not just a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid, empirically-based research. We have evidence-based findings that we should be really proclaiming, both in the church to encourage Christian men and in the public square to help counter the negative media stereotypes. It is encouraging. And I can see where, depending on the circle someone runs in, it's not information they'd want to hear. And my pushback on that would be, it's good news no matter what, that we have women who are not being abused. So, I mean, let's champion that wherever that's happening. Yes, that's a good thing. Yes. And I mean, the, the important thing is that we also look at the other side of the research, which was that um, the negative stereotypes of evangelical men arise because there are nominal Christian men who test out quite differently. So the mm -hmm. good news is about men who actually attend church regularly and live it out. But uh, when people started saying, but wait a minute, don't Christians divorce at the same rate as everyone else? The researchers went back to the data and they made a, a distinction between those those who are active churchgoers and those who are merely nominal. My, my students don't even know what nominal means. So I have to explain N-O-M is Latin for name. So it means in name only. So these are men who on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, for example, but who actually don't a church, attend church at all, if, rarely if at all, and who identify as evangelicals because of their family background, their culture, and so on. And these men test out dramatically differently. In fact, they test out, their, their wives test out as the unhappiest with their husband's treatment of them. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They divorce, nominal Christian men divorce at a higher rate even than secular men. And they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than secular men. So this is the shocker, is that, you know, under the umbrella of evangelical, the reason you get you know, the, the statistics get skewed is because you have men who are testing out better than secular men, but men who are also testing out as worse than secular men. And so I, I think the challenge for the church, at least, is how do we support the men, encourage the men who are doing well, because they feel beaten down just as much as other men do. Uh, I, when I told my class at Houston Christian University that I'm writing a book on masculinity, a male student shot back what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. So even in Christian circles, men do feel like you know, there's a certain hostility to masculinity. But then how does the church also reach out more effectively to these men who claim an evangelical identity, 
but who are taking biblical words like headship and submission, and they're, they're not Christian enough to know what the biblical meaning of those terms is. And so they're infusing those terms with meaning from the secular world, dominance, control, entitlement, and so on. And ironically, uh, some people have said, well, why are they even worse than secular men? Apparently, it's because they're taking the secular script for masculinity, but they're putting religious language on it. And so they feel religious justification. You know, the secular person at least doesn't feel he has religious justification for abusing his family. But the religious man feels like he has religious justification. And so they end up with the worst of both worlds. They end up worse than secular men. So this is a challenge. How does the church reach out and disciple these men better? Um, you know, the, the, the two sides of it. How can the church reach out to the, the men who are doing well? And how does the church reach out to disciple the men who are claiming an evangelical identity, but doing worse than secular men? Oh, Nancy, you just summarized that so well. So yes, what you just spoke to of what can happen in homes when someone is a nominal Christian, like you said, where they're not really living according to biblical truth, they're just slapping terms on things and maybe wrongly kind of identifying as something that they're not really living out. That's where we then see that speaking to our audience here at Be Emboldened, we see that spiritual abuse part come in along with whatever other form of abuse is going on, if it is domestic violence or if it is sexual abuse, something else going on within the household. We've now mucked it up even more because now it's maybe being done in the name of God. And like, now what do we do with that? And so then worldview gets really messy. Someone's potential relationship with Jesus can go out the window. And that's where we end up seeing people here, you know, coming to us where they're like, this was done in the name of, of Jesus. Who is this Jesus really? Yeah, it's just, it, it blows it way up even more. It, and it's so bad to begin with, but it adds this extra layer that's so confusing. Oh, well, as you know, as you know, you've read the book. Um, I, mean, I start with the story of growing up in an abusive home, uh, which is one reason I appreciate your ministry so much. Um, uh, my father was severely physically abusive. Books on abuse will sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? It was closed fist. No, he, he was punching us. Actually, his favorite was the knuckle fist, so so it would produce a sharper stab of pain. Um, and he was quite open about it. He would say, do this or I'll beat you. I mean, he, he was very open that he was beating us. Um, and so, yes, of course, I left my faith in high school. I left, we, uh, It was a Lutheran upbringing. So I don't know if you know this, but Scandinavians are Lutheran in the way that all Italians are Catholic. So my parents were Scandinavian and they were Lutheran, but it was more of an ethnic background rather than true commitment. And so when I was in high school, I started asking questions about my religious upbringing. And I walked away eventually, walked away entirely and uh, and became very enamored of feminist books, read feminist books for a decade. Um, but you're right. Um, when I finally started rethinking Christianity, uh, which, by the way, happened at Labrie. Labrie is, uh, you may know, Labrie is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And he was well known for having an apologetics ministry. And it was in Switzerland. We used to live in Europe when I was a child. And so I'd gone back to Europe and I sort of stumbled across this ministry um, in Switzerland. And by that time, I had absorbed all kinds of secular worldviews. And so I was I was stunned by this place because I'd never met any Christians who could talk about the secular worldviews that I had absorbed by that time, who could answer those worldviews, who could show that Christianity had answers to them. So that was the uh, that was really the reason I became a Christian, uh, re returned to my Christian faith. But also on staff at Labrie was a psychiatric social worker. And she was there because she knew that for many people, the barriers to Christianity are not just intellectual, but are emotional especially if you've had an abusive background, you know, um, if, if you, if you've had parents who said, this is what Christianity is, and then they beat you. I mean, you, you can see why that would be a barrier. And once I worked through some of the intellectual questions, I began to realize, oh, I actually do have a strong emotional barrier because whatever my parents are, I do not want to be, I do not right. want to be anything like my parents. And so I had to work through that emotional barrier as well. I, I didn't want to have the Christianity that my parents had. Fortunately, Labrie, Francis Schaeffer's ministry, showed me a different kind of Christianity that was intellectually viable, 
that was emotionally loving. It was a, it was a kind of Christian community. Many people said they became Christians there because they experienced a quality of love that they had never experienced back home in their family or their Christian churches. And I would say it was, that was a big part of my, my reason for becoming a Christian too, because not only did I become intellectually convinced it was true, but I could see emotionally that actually this, this works in the real world. These people are actually very loving. And then uh, the psychiatric social worker, her name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. And then Birdie was helping me to work through the trauma of my childhood. Because when I left home, I wanted to push it all. I, I wanted to totally erase my whole childhood. I thought I could do this, right? I could start over with a blank slate and build my whole self anew. And Birdie helped me to see, actually, you can't do that. You have to work through the trauma of your childhood. And so, so, so this was wonderful because right from the start of my Christian faith, I had both a very rich intellectual understanding, but also a very rich understanding of emotional, psychological, spiritual healing. And so I'm, I'm very grateful that I had that right from the beginning of my Christian life then as a young adult. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And we definitely have overlaps in our stories of how we came to be where we are currently. And uh, yeah, my, my dad was a big fan of brick walls and one another's heads and, and things like that. And so, yes, what really, what really convinced me was realizing that God was loving. So same, it was an emotional, what is, what does love even mean? What does that actually look like? Is it good? Can I trust it? Is, is love safe? Because if that was love, that was unsafe. So Yes, exactly. absolutely working through those things and additional to, yes, does this intellectually actually check out? Because as someone who appreciates higher education, that also did matter. So, yeah. And I appreciate what you're saying because, yes, I was very afraid of love. I was afraid of love because the people who said they loved me hurt me. And so it took years. I, I should say, you know, I don't mean to sound like it all happened when I was at Labrie, you know, my conversion. No, it's been years and years of emotional and psychological healing. And I like the way you put it because you're afraid of love. Um, you're afraid to accept love because love has been, you know, issued. It, it's love has hurt you. <laughs> and so that's, I, I like the way you put that. It's important to experience a whole different quality of love. Thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable and share about this. It's so, it's so, I can imagine people who I know will be listening to this later. And I think that's going to really touch their hearts and it's going to really speak to them deeply. So thank you for your willingness to talk about things that are not, not super fun to talk about. No, it, it, it feels very vulnerable putting in a book. Um, I, I didn't come public with it until my father passed away. I, I didn't want to do that while he was still alive. So, so it still feels like you say a bit vulnerable, but actually putting in a book and letting, knowing that people are reading my story. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for, uh, understanding that part of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In your book, you then spend time going through the history of masculinity. You spend a good chunk going through it and talking about it and how we've arrived where we're at currently. So there's one section that really stood out to me in particular, again, based on what I do here at B, and that was a section about fundamentalism. And you have a, a statement that it, fundamentalism was a course correction from the Victorian era. And so much of our audience has left some form of fundamentalism. And I think that they would find this really interesting too. So would you I have a few questions about this, but first, would you mind defining fundamentalism as used in your book and explain this transition from one era into the next? Yeah, so fundamentalism did arise as... Um... American Christianity was dividing into liberal and conservative in the beginning of the 20th century. They called it modernism. Liberalism was called modernism. Today we call it progressivism. The, the labels keep changing. But um, in the early 20th century, more and more churches were going liberal in their theology. And so fundamentalism was the, the group of people who said, no, you know, we want to stick with what the Bible says. We believe the Bible is true. We don't want to go liberal. But the course correction um, was this. You have to go back to the first and second great awakenings. American evangelicalism really grew out of the two great awakenings. And during those great awakenings, um, more women than men were converting. And women were also allowed a, a very much of a public ministry. 
by most of the revivalists of the, especially the Second Great Awakening. Women were involved in being evangelists and deaconesses and Bible teachers, and uh, they called them exhorters. Um, in other words, public public preaching and uh, heads of Christian schools, etc. And that continued all the way up into early fundamentalism. Um, the early fundamentalists also, Dwight Moody, for example, um, R.A. Torrey, Billy Sunday, they all continued to have a wide role, a very rich role for women in public ministry. Now, most churches did not ordain women, but they allowed women to have a very large um, impact in their public ministry. They spoke publicly to mixed audiences, as they put it, which meant they spoke to both men and women. They had no problem with women being Bible teachers with male students or uh, speaking in a church service, reading the scripture, praying, and so on. They were evangel again, they were evangelists, deaconists, missionaries, and even preachers. For example, uh, especially in the rural areas where there were small, small churches that didn't have a lot of money, men wouldn't go there. So women did. It's partly because men felt they had to support a family and women would often go single. But it was very common to have women preachers, non-ordained preachers. Uh, by the way, I have a, I have a graduate student who, who grew up in eastern Tennessee, and he said, well, yeah, we still had lots of female teachers. He went to a Bible, a Bible college in eastern Tennessee that was founded by a woman. So wow. this was very much part of the whole ethos in the both in the evangelical movement and the early fundamentalist movement. But later in the fundamentalist movement, they began to crack down on women having public ministry. And part of this was a reaction to feminism. Christians began to be more and more concerned about uh, early feminism. Well, the, I guess it would be the second wave. I'm not sure about these waves because the earliest feminists, you know, were pro-life and, and pro-family and so on. Um, but, then when feminists began to imitate men, so to speak, you know, they started um, saying, what, what, why should we be, why should we have a double standard for men and women? If men can smoke and drink and gamble and go to parties, uh, dance halls is what it was back then, go to dance halls and movie theaters, which was considered sinful. Um, if men can do these things, so can women. And so in response to that, a lot of fundamentalist leaders began cracking down on women in leadership and stopped allowing women uh, to to have such a public role in the churches. And you see it especially um, in uh, seminaries, Bible colleges and so on, Bible institutes. Uh, up until then, they'd been roughly 50% women. Moody Bible Institute, for example, was sometimes called the West Point of fundamentalism. They set the tone. And, you know, for the first 40 years of their existence, they were 50%, you know, half women. Um, and women were in the preachers' courses. Like I said, women were often unordained, uh, non-ordained preachers. But then, as they began shutting it down, they started putting quotas on how many female students they accepted. They started having special courses for women on sewing, cooking, and homemaking, and eventually required all female students to take those courses. And when Moody Bible Institute finally formalized its preachers' program, it included only men. So there was uh, uh, what we see today, we tend to think of fundamentalism as being very male dominated. Well, that's when that happened. Um, and and so that's the kind of the history of fundamentalism. It's, it's interesting because they started out being more like evangelicals, accepting women in leadership, and then they shut down. And so many, most people today think of fundamental, fundamentalist churches as very um like I said, male dominated and, and maybe suppressing women's gifts. And and many, many are. So that's that gets some of the history. So around what year, year decades, where where are we in the history of the United States when we're talking about this transition was being made with like Bible uh, Moody Bible Institute? 1920s. 1920s. When you want to think of fundamentalism, just think the 1920s. And when you said it was a, a I, well, you quoted me saying it was a course correction. Let me give a little more background on that. Um, in the Victorian era, women began to be seen as morally and spiritually superior to men. So um, 
for the first time ever in human history. The background, the background is this. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, um, men worked at home with their wives and children all day. And so the ethos for masculinity focused very much on a caretaking role, right? That they had to be gentle and kind and patient because they're working with their children and their wives. And they're training their sons in particular in the skills that they will need for the adult world. But the, the Industrial Revolution takes work out of the home. And of course, men have to follow their work out of the home into offices and factories. And for the first time, men were not working with people that they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And so this is where you first start to see people protest that the male character was changing, that they were losing the caretaking ethos that they had in the colonial era. And they were becoming individualistic and egocentric and greedy and acquisitive and look out for number one and make it, uh, you know, whatever it takes to, to make it financially, make it professionally financial success. And so you see this in the literature of the day already that people began to be concerned that men were losing what was essentially also a biblical ethos, because as the Industrial Revolution gave rise to these large public institutions, businesses, industries, financial institutions, banks, universities, and, and of course, the state, uh, people began to say that these public institutions should be operated by scientific principles, by which they meant value-free. Just like we hear today, you know, don't bring your private values into the public arena. So as a result, the public realm began to be secularized. They began to say, you know, in, in, in the public arena, you know, we play by a different set of rules. And since it was men who were getting that secular education and working in that secular environment, they began to be secular before women did. And again, you see this in the literature of the day. They began to complain that men were not attending churches often. Men were not governing their behavior by biblical principles as often. And if values were kicked out of the public arena, where would they be cultivated? In the private arena. And who presides over the private realm? Women do. And so that's actually the first time in human history that women were said to be morally and spiritually superior. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had thought that men were morally superior, that the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight, and they assumed that men were more rational, and therefore men were more virtuous. In fact, the word virtue comes from the Latin, V-I-R, means man, and as in the word virile. So the word virtue had overtones of masculine strength and honor. And so this was a huge turnaround in the 19th century when people began to say that women were morally and spiritually superior. And so when I say it was a course correction, the fundamentalist said, that's not right. We shouldn't act as if women were morally, you know, were holier and more virtuous. Why? That lets men off the hook. We're giving men a pass on moral responsibility by saying that women are naturally more 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 uh, spiritual. Men are just naturally less spiritual. They're more naturally prone to sin and vice. You know, they're more naturally prone to pornography, sexual sin, drinking, gambling, um, the the whole gamut of 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 sins. Men were said to be more prone to. And it was up to men, to women to hold the line, right? To say, to, to use the language of the day, they said women are now the guardians of uh, the moral guardians, the moral guardians of society. And so that double standard has been there for a long time, well, since the 19th century, that women have to hold the line. Women have to hold men in check. It's up to women to tame men. That was the language often used or to civilize men. And so the fundamentalists were right at the beginning when they said that double standard is wrong. It's derogatory to men. It demeans men. It lets them off the hook. It says, you know, well, if men are just naturally more sinful, you know, what can we do? It's, it's up to women to hold them in check then. And that's why I say it was an important course correction. The fundamentalists said we should hold men just as accountable as we hold women. Men should be accountable to the biblical ethic. Men should be just as morally just as moral, just as loving, just as kind, just as spiritual as women are. And so 
that was a good thing when fundamentalists said, we're going to get rid of that Victorian double standard and we're going to hold men to be just as to be accountable morally and spiritually, just as women are. So that's why I started out saying it was a good course correction. Unfortunately, then it went further than that and began to denigrate women and to say that men are morally superior, not because they were holier, but because they were more thought to be more rational and more uh, more courageous. And so they could they would go to battle against liberalism. So that was the understanding back then. When we hear people like John Piper today say, you know, mask, uh, Christianity is a masculine feel. Do you remember he said something like that? That comes from the fundamentalists. They said, you know, the the, the, the strongest Christian is a man because it takes a real man to be a Christian. And, and so that's, that's why we have, I have kind of a double take on fundamentalism. It was good when it started because it said, you know, we got to hold men accountable. It's not right to say that women have to civilize men. That's, that's wrong. But then they went further and started to denigrate women and to say that Christianity is essentially a masculine religion. Um, one one fundamentalist leader even argued that men are made in God's image in a way that women are not. And they began to say that men need to be treated as God, as one fundamentalist leader said. Men in their household are like God to uh, to his people, that women and children owe them absolute obedience, even if, and they say this directly, John Rice says this, um, who's a who was a major fundamentalist leader? Even if the husband is a drunkard, is wasting the family's money, is beating his wife and kids, she still has no option but to just obey him absolutely. So that's where fundamentalism slid into being some of the negative characteristics that we see in it today. This really blew my mind, and I don't I don't feel like my mind gets blown that often. <laughs> But this really blew my mind when I was reading your book. I was actually, it was funny because for part of the time I was driving, so I was listening to it on Audible. But then I would kind of keep tabs on where I was because I'd want to go back and I would mark things and I'd want to write in it and underline things. And there were parts where I just had to keep, I kept, I would replay it. I'm like, this is, this is so interesting to me because when I was raised and I was raised in a patriarchal group. And so, and so fundamentalism, but patriarchy, I'm not always sure how to really could compare and contrast those two. Maybe you have a, a comment on that. Is it just like fundamentalism really to the nth degree when we say <laughs> patriarchy or do you think patriarchy really is fundamentalism in truth? Well, um, you know, today, so Eventually, like in the 40s and 50s, evangelicalism distinguished itself from um, fundamentalism um, and it left some of that behind. And today, the favored word is complementarianism. You've heard that one, right? Yeah, um, right. That really rose, though, in the 1980s. I didn't realize it was so recent until I wrote my book. Complementarianism was a term that was uh, really became common in the 1980s. And their purpose... You know, I read I read the literature by the people who said, you know, what word should we choose <laughs> as as evangelicals? What do we want to call this position? And they they thought of patriarchy and they said, no, because the word patriarchy has historically I mean, it's been used culturally, you know, from time immemorial. Most cultures have been patriarchal because men are stronger than women. And so in most cultures, men have dominated. Uh, the, I don't know if, technically if there even are any matriarchal societies, um, but patriarchy was always connected with the idea that men men have power because they are superior and women are inferior. You know, their their the position of power was justified by the assumption that men are are superior, women are inferior, and so. In the 1980s, when evangelicals said, well, what word do we want to use? They said, we don't want to use patriarchy because it has the implication that women are inferior. So they chose complementarianism because they said, what we want to be able to communicate is that men and women are both made in God's image. They are spiritually equal status. Um, and, and we want to be, be sure that that's what we're affirming. And yet we do still believe in some sort of different role that men have a kind of, uh, as Ephesians puts it, you know, that they have headship in the home. So they wanted to somehow 
and some people don't think they succeeded, but they wanted to somehow say there are different roles, there are different responsibilities, and yet their their status is the same. Um, in the secular world, you sometimes hear people talk about first among equals, like they'll talk about the chair of a committee being first among equals, meaning we all have equal status, but the chair does have certain distinctive responsibilities. And so I thought, well, that might be, you know, borrowing a phrase from the secular world, that might be a good description of how evangelicals try to define complementarianism today to distinguish it from patriarchy. They say, no, women are not inferior. They are spiritually equal, but a man is first among equals in the sense that he has some distinctive responsibilities. So I think, well, I want to make two notes on this. So the first one is, so I've heard that there's been some controversy about the book. So one of the comments I want to make, though, in regards to some of what that is, because to be honest, I don't pay a lot of attention to it because the book was excellent and I'm just not really interested. Um, but I did not walk away. This is for our listeners. I didn't walk away with feeling like Nancy was egalitarian or complementarian. It's just it's not what the book is about. So I walked away and I don't know what she is. And don't tell me. I was like, I, it doesn't it really wasn't the point of the book. It's not really what the book is about. And so that's not what this conversation is about either. So strictly what is being shared here is the history of how these different terms and positions came to be. And here's why I think it's so important for those of you who are listening, who had some background where you're like, wait, I, I thought I, you know, I was, I grew up in a fundamentalist background. Maybe that was your experience as well. I'm curious, anyone who watches or listens to this, I would be really interested in your comments. If you, if you're comfortable to leave them or send us an email, I was raised that fundamentalism was like, for forever. I mean, this was always fundamentalism. This is always what it's been throughout the history. I had no idea this was kicking off in the 20s. And before that, women were pastors and going to actually getting higher education degrees in this stuff. I mean, that I thought what was changing now, things like like when I started at seminary and I was pulled aside, like, okay, you're a woman, you might get some pushback. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm just here to learn about God. Like, what pushback am I going to be getting? And so I was very naive to it. But but the seminary knew like we embrace women here, but not everyone embraces women being at a place like this. And so we want you to know that we're here for you and we support you. And I'm like, I didn't know anyone really didn't. Um, I knew my dad wouldn't, but he was gone. And so I thought I was free from that. But I'm going through all of this in my mind and I'm working this through and I'm, but I had this impression of this is how it's always been. And we're now shifting away. And so to hear, no, it was more so like this before there was this course correct that then went too far overcorrected. And now we're kind of seeming kind of bringing it back a bit. And it just, it was fascinating to me and very freeing as well of, okay, this is not how it's been for the past 2000 years consecutively. <laughs> there has been movement, there has been. And so the education on the history of all of this is really eye-opening and I think can just land us in reality of, okay, culture shifts and changes and and we see this, we see this within our lifetime. We definitely see it when we look back over hundreds of years. And so just a sense of caution that the terms we may be using, we might be attaching meanings to them that don't actually belong there. And we can keep ourselves in this stuck place that we don't have to be in. So again, Nancy, I found your book not to be, oh, I can, I lean more egalitarian now, or I lean more complementarian now, just more rooted and truly what historically has happened. Well, I, um, I explicitly explain why I'm not arguing complementarian versus egalitarian in the book. Um, and I quote two of the top marriage researchers. One of them I already mentioned, Brad Wilcox at, at the University of Virginia. Um, he says in his research um, that he found that, well, first of all, as I already said, complementarian marriages or theologically conservative, he actually doesn't use the word complementarian. <laughs> Because uh, the the public attacks against conservative Christians has been attacks on evangelicals. That is often the word used. You know, these evangelical Christians um, are often attacked in public. And so the researchers went out and researched evangelicals 
they did not research complementarians, right? And so I was just being true to my data. I didn't talk about complementarians because that's not who was studied. I used the word evangelical, meaning in its traditional theological meaning. In other words, people who, who believe the Bible is God's word and authoritative for their life. And uh, evangelical usually includes the notion that the core of the Christian life is a deep personal commitment, personal relationship with God, as opposed to more churchly, that, that's what they're sometimes called, more churchly denominations, like the one I grew up, Lutheran, where their faith is expressed mostly through church rituals. So Catholics you see, uh, tend to be more churchly, for example. Um they express their faith more through attending church and going through the rituals, whereas evangelicals have traditionally been people who said, no, really, the core of it is that personal relationship with God. Um, and evangelicals are usually also very involved in evangelism. Like it's your personal responsibility to, to, to talk to other people about Jesus and about God. So that's what distinguishes evangelicalism historically as a theology. Um, and so that's who, the, who, that's who they studied, evangelicals. But Brad Wilcox does explain that um, theologically conservative men, you know, many of them, not all, many of them are complementarian. So he did look at that as well. And he said, well, actually, it doesn't seem to make much difference. <laughs> what makes evangelical men loving and engaged husbands and fathers is not their gender theology. The gender theory doesn't seem to make much difference, he said. What makes the difference is the family-centered focus. They do believe that the family is a, the, the heart of civilization. The family should be their main priority in life. And it's that family-focused mentality that makes them committed to working on their marriage and working on being good fathers. And he said, I found that, he as a researcher found that to be the main distinction between fathers who would, and husbands who were deeply engaged and those who were not. So he literally says, his, the gender theory seems to have no impact on a wife's happiness. Remember the, the key thing they're always looking at, are the wives happy or do, do they feel oppressed and silenced and dominated? Um, so he said, a husband's gender theory does not seem to make much difference in his wife's happiness. And then they interviewed, they did one study as well, at least one, one that I cited, on egalitarian marriages. And they said, from our research, egalitarian marriages were not any happier. You know, the assumption would be if husband and wife see themselves as strict equals, you know, wouldn't that be better? I mean, intuitively, might, we might think so. If they saw themselves as, as precise equals, then they would be happier. He said, actually, egalitarian marriages don't end up being happier. And I don't know if he speculates why, but one researcher I found said, well, they're always keeping lists, you know. I did this much, you did that much. <laughs> Perhaps that's part of it. Um, and then the other, so Brad Wilcox was a, the sociologist of marriage who says, I just don't see a difference in gender theory. That's not what makes marriages happier. And then the other one is John Gottman, who has a Jewish background and he's a psychologist and he's considered the top marriage psychologist in the nation. And he puts it this way. He says, I have people coming into my practice who believe the man should be in charge of his marriage and of his wife. And I have people coming into my practice who are very egalitarian. And he said, I don't see a difference. And his, his language was like this. He said, emotionally intelligent husbands, it's not a great phrase, emotionally intelligent husbands have figured out what makes a difference. And that is conveying respect and honor to their wives. And again, he says, it's not your gender theory that determines that. Um, you can have any gender theory and still show honor and respect to your wife. And so I, I put that in the book. I said, look, I'm not dealing with the complementarian egalitarian debate because number one, that's not primarily who was studied, but even more importantly, these two top researchers said it doesn't seem to be what makes a difference. And so in practical terms, I sort of said, okay, so I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> but of course, as you notice, um, it has been jumped on by both sides. Who, who want to drag it into that debate. And uh, so that's why it, there's been sort of a Twitter storm um, by people arguing from both sides because they're, they're concerned that the book really doesn't take a stand. But you're right. I don't take a stand on that. Yes. And I think something else that stood out to me as I was reading was um, 
Well, because you're not taking a stand, you're really talking about the toxic war on masculinity. I mean, you're talking about the the name of the book. You're talking about what <laughs> it was well titled. That is what you talk about. And you take us through historically what has been and what have been the the wins and the losses with what has been. And how have we landed where we are? What are the wins we have now? What are the kind of the losses that we're taking now in regards to masculinity? And something that I saw, this would have been like maybe 2016. So not that long ago, maybe like seven, eight years ago. Um, it got pretty popular, these shirts that said the future is female. Did you ever see any of those on students or anything? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I remember I've got people that I just, I love to death who were wearing those shirts. And I don't know if I ever said to them directly. I just don't know. I think it just maybe went through my mind. I don't know if I ever had a conversation about it, but so they might be finding this out when they, when they watch, but it, it always bothered me because I thought the future shouldn't be female alone either. It should be everyone. And some may say, well, that's a, you know, egalitarian statement. I'm saying this isn't about women being superior, like you said, or men being superior. And I think complementarian would agree with that too. So I'm going to set that aside. I'm like, why are we swapping one for the other? Why can't it be the future is the kingdom of God. And how can we all be a part of that? I mean, that's the shirt I want. You know, the future is the kingdom of God. And hopefully, you know, not to get into kingdom now theology, that's not what I mean to imply. But I'm like, as much of it now as possible is great. So, you know, that that uh, now but not yet situation that we're in. So I wonder if you just would want to speak to that for a moment. I know we're kind of segueing here a little bit off of what I had had on my list for questions. But I think that's part of what you're speaking to in your book about this view that mis- masculinity is is toxic. It's bad. It's it's beyond bad. Toxic is worse than bad. It's a stronger word than bad. And we're not really seeking for women to be superior either. We're looking for what it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, my books are on apologetics. I became a Christian through Francis Schaeffer's apologetics. And so all of my books on apologetics, and that's why I don't want to get involved in little in-house debates between Christians. I think we have a much bigger job to do, and that is defending Christianity publicly against the secular arena, which is, you know, so powerful these days. Um, and what caught my eye, you're absolutely right, what, what caught my eye and, and did make me decide to write this book was the, the incredible hostility that it's become acceptable to express against men. So the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? I thought, really? In a respected mainstream publication? A Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag kill all men. And talking about t-shirts, you can buy t-shirts now that say, uh, so many men, so little ammunition. You can buy books that have titles like, I hate men, and no good men, and are men necessary? And even uh, males have jumped on the bandwagon, demeaning their own sex. One male author wrote a book, uh, the most widely quoted line from it is, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. And you may have seen this because it was in the news not too long ago, so it's not in the book. It's more recent. The director of the movie Avatar was in the news. Uh, His name is James Cameron. And he said, testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. So no wonder studies are starting to show, this This was also 2016, a study done found that 46% of American men agree with the statement that society these days seems to punish men just for acting like men. And that's, that's a lot of men. And by the way, there's a more recent one, so it's not in the book. In Britain, 55% of men agreed with that. So, so it seems to be going up. Even if you don't agree, that is a, lar- a large number of men who now think that men are getting a bad deal. And, and I think that it, it is time to show compassion for men. I mean, men are falling behind at all levels. Boys are falling behind at all levels of education from kindergarten on all the way to college. Most colleges now are 60% female, 40% male. More women than men go to graduate school. More women than men even go to professional schools like law and medicine. And there are are books out now with titles like Why Boys Fail and The Trouble with Boys and The War Against Boys. And then when they're adults, men are more likely to commit suicide, to be homeless, to be drug or alcohol addicted, to commit crime. 
90% of prison inmates are male. Um, more unemployment rates have gone way up. Um, it doesn't show in the normal unemployment statistics because they've stopped looking for work. So researchers had to d dig deeper. And what they're telling us is male unemployment is at depression era levels. I was shocked. Depression era levels. And their life expectancy is also going down. Women's has stayed the same, so it's not a general trend. But um, in the last several years, male life expectancy has gone down so that a magazine called The New Scientist had an article where they said the major demographic factor in early death is being male. So I think it's time for us to start saying, wait a minute, it's, you know, shouldn't we maybe have some compassion on men? Shouldn't we maybe start talking about programs for helping men? The uh, 1994 Equity Act poured millions, maybe billions of dollars into uh, programs for girls in schools, you know, equity workshops and curricular development and so on. And that's great. I mean, girls are doing wonderful. By the way, we don't want to sound like we think it's a bad thing for women to be doing well. As you know, probably, women were not even accepted into most universities until the mid-20th century. So I'm very thankful I didn't live back then. <laughs> um, so it's good. We we, we want to celebrate women getting ahead. But we do want to say, isn't it time for, for maybe some programs for men, too, for men and boys? Is there a way that we can start helping boys who are feeling lost and who are failing to launch, to, to use a phrase that's become pretty common, unfortunately? Isn't there a way that we should now start talking about what is a Christian view of manhood and how can the churches support men better? I have a graduate student who, um, she's a woman, and she heads up the women's ministry at a large Baptist church in Houston. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell mothers they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. So I think even churches need to start rethinking their approach. You know, how can we affirm and support men? In, in being godly men, uh, especially the ones who are doing a good job already, su support and affirm and encourage them so that the, the, the church does not simply mirror the, the secular world and, you know, in denigrating men today. Oh, and I don't know about, again, any of you who are listening and watching to this later, but when I, when I read the written version of what Nancy just shared, I realized that like I've absorbed some of this through the culture and like, I don't want it. <laughs> I want to squeeze it back out. And I, I saw, yeah, I, I could tell that I've been influenced in some of my thinking and in some of how I, I interact. Um, and so my next question kind of comes from that, honestly. So I want to be, make it personal. Like I, I have, I am now working some of this through because I'm like, wait, this is not biblical. And that means it's not godly. And so it's not as it should be. And so I need to, wherever I've started picking some of this up from, like it's got to go. I need to get in alignment again with truth. So I think our culture enforces the narrative that women have to because men either can't, at least as well as a female, or they won't, as in they refuse. And reading through the history of masculinity that you wrote out in your book, there seems to be some evidence for this at times, like that when man caves came to be. Like, so, you know, you share some of that. So at times men weren't doing some things that they had been doing before. And yet it's not that simple. Like that's, we can oversimplify here. And so what have you discovered to be the truth in response to this perspective? Again, in light of the information you've already shared with us today. Yeah, um, I, I I like what you're getting at. So uh, we talked about the colonial era where men worked side by side with their wives and children all day. And the expectation of masculinity was quite different. They totally expected fathers to be just as involved with their children as mothers. In fact, books on parenting were addressed to fathers, not mothers. You know, you go into a typical bookstore today and, you know, most books on parenting are addressed to mothers. But back then, uh, sermons, pamphlets, advice manuals written to parents addressed fathers, sometimes both parents. But if they chose one, it would be to the father because they expected the father to have the primary responsibility, especially for the spiritual and intellectual life of his of his children. Yes, mothers have a greater role in infancy when they're uh, breastfeeding and so on. Um, but they did expect the father to have primary responsibility. In fact, they even used the word house father. 
That was fairly common. We talk about housewives today, but back then they talked about housefathers, um, which is, you know, sounds very strange to us today. Uh, but I, so I want us to, to realize that this is just not universal. It's most of human history. Remember that prior to the industrial revolution means most of human history. <laughs> so we're talking about what has been the human pattern for, for millennia, which is fathers being more involved with their kids. You know, Jesus, Jesus own childhood working in his father's carpenter shop was the norm through most of human history. And so then after the Industrial Revolution, men are taking out of the home. And by the way, you, you see this right away in the 19th century. People began to lament and express concern that fathers were no longer as involved with their kids. One person at the time, a writer at the time said, the father is supposed to be the prototype of the heavenly father. And yet he's gone all, all week. You know, he's, he's home basically just on Sundays. You know, this is, this should not be, you know, how can our children learn about the heavenly father when their, their human father is not even present in the home? And so, you know, we're used to that now, right? But at the time, it was quite a shock to have that sort of father absence. You know, they were technically still married, but the father was out of the home all day. In fact, one historian calls it industrial fatherlessness that for the first time, especially boys, right? Cause they're growing up without a male role model day to day. Girls at least still had the mothers at home, but boys had no day-to-day -day model of what it meant to be a man. And th their father was basically invisible all day. Um, in fact, one writer says um, the, bo the, the bond that was most damaged by the Industrial Revolution was the father-son bond. And one sociologist puts it this way, for the first time, boys experienced an identity crisis. So there's a whole lot going on there for fathers and sons. And I say that, in fact, the solution, the solution to toxic behavior in men lies in reconstructing, you know, getting fathers back involved with their children, especially their sons. One psychiatrist says, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers, you know, who are willing to be there raising their sons. But historically, um, what happened though is that you you mentioned that fathers won't or can't. That set in really um, toward the end of the 19th century um, when, as I mentioned, women began to be seen as superior morally and spiritually because values were kicked out of the public realm. And so they were put in the, in the home where then women supposedly presided over that realm. And the language of the day was that men would be out in that secular realm, the rough tumble you know, dog-eat-dog -dog world of commerce and business, and they would come home and be reformed and refined and renewed by their morally superior wives. Well, eventually, men began to realize that that was so, somewhat derogatory. To imply that men were somehow less moral and less spiritual was not a good thing. And men began to say, well, we need to get away from women. We need to get away from civilization. We need to find our true manhood by getting out into the wilderness going out and living with the cowboys and roping cattle and sleeping under the stars. And that's when you see, as you put it, for the first time, the man cave. Uh, I think it was 18, around 1850, for the first time, homes began being built with a separate room for the, for the husband, father, um, where he could sort of get away from his family. You know, if he couldn't go off and live with the cowboys, he could at least have his own, his own den where he could get away from his family you know, when he came home from the work, the work or day, work day world, his time was his own. This time was not to come home to a second job as an involved and active family man. No, he could escape off into his den. And so that attitude that somehow men are not as involved in engaged fathers grows out of the 19th century. And, and I will give the solution too. um, I'm not averse to appealing to men's self-interest. <laughs> and so in the book, I have a chapter on how men benefit from becoming fathers instead of just scolding them and telling them to do better, which I'm afraid is the message they usually get. I go into some of the um, scientific findings about how men, in fact, become fuller, more, have a fuller sense of manhood and masculinity by becoming fathers. Um, there's a nest of neurons in their brain 
that doesn't get activated unless they become fathers. One psychologist calls it the dad brain and says, you know, there are neurons that do not develop if you don't become a father. Um, he says that when men become fathers, they literally ex experience growth, brain growth, brain development. They also biochemically change. Their testosterone goes down, which makes them gentler with their children. And their oxytocin goes up. Oxytocin is called the bonding hormone. It creates a sense of, of love and attachment. And we've always known that women's oxytocin goes up when they're pregnant and when they give birth. But it turns out that men's oxytocin also goes up so that they are biochemically primed to become more involved fathers. By the way, it only works, though, if they're actively handling their child, holding, hugging, cuddling, playing with their child. It's uh, Apparently, it's um, triggered by a uh, tactile sense. And so a man, it, God has actually created fathers also to have that little biochemical boost in becoming involved and loving fathers. And the latest research, this was really surprising. This was an anthropologist um, who wrote a book in which she said, a man's oxytocin actually goes up all through his wife's pregnancy. Nobody knew that before. I don't think anyone thought to test a man's blood during his wife's pregnancy. <laughs> but when they did, they found out that if he's living with his wife, um, his, his oxytocin is going up all through the pregnancy just like hers is. And so he's being prepared biochemically to be a, an engaged father all through his wife's pregnancy. So I think this is wonderful that you know, God has given both men and women a little boost in terms of their biochemistry to, to attach to this extremely helpless influence who needs them desperately. And, you know, we as adults need to learn how to, how to meet the infant's need. And God has given us a little help that way. And, and so men, I quote several men who said, you know, I discovered that when I became a father, my, my sense of manhood greatly expanded. So it's in men's own interest to be loving and involved husbands and fathers. It's fascinating. I love the biology part in your book. I love, I love all of that in general. So like neuroscience things. And so I really appreciated that those aspects were included and I didn't know any of that stuff. And I was able to think back to how my husband transitioned, which my husband's always been more of a, a nurturer to begin with, just a very wanting to be involved, you know, wanting to be emotionally present and available. And he's not a nominal Christian. Hey, so maybe that's why. But <laughs> so, but when we had our son, I remember that they put him on my chest first, but then they put him on my husband's. And so they wear, you know, bare chest to bare back and he's holding him. And we're, they were able to start to have that connection just like the mom gets to have and how it all just kind of began. But even before that, you know, when my stomach was getting bigger and he could feel him kick and he could, you know, there's kind of surreal in a way. But yeah, I can look back and I can see some of those changes and see even why the hospital staff probably did some of the things that they did, you know, and I'm thankful that they did that because I wouldn't have known to put my son on my husband's chest after my own so that they could start with that physical bonding and having those things happen, you know, physiologically in his body too. So it's really fascinating. And I think bigger picture as, as we wrap up is it just reminds me that the more we look at the sciences, the more we look at the research studies and the more we look at biology and just whatever it is, if God's real, we're going to find him. And man, when I see this stuff, I'm like, wow, you really know what you're doing. I wasn't really questioning that anyway, but my goodness, this is so neat. And so it really speaks to what his design is for the family and, and how he cares for it, that he would design us in such a way to come together more as a unit to raise that child and be present and the issues we see. And there's times where, of course, that can't happen. It doesn't work out that way. And prayerfully, you know, it's provided for in other ways. We have adoption. We have foster care. We have people who lose their parents young. We have all kinds of things that happen. But when we're looking at what, it, what his perfect design is, we see that through the sciences, including our social sciences with the research that you presented. So again, 
it's a really fascinating book. It it really, like I said, I walked away like I learned so much. And again, like I said, even personally recognized, I have some of that that attitude of like, I can do it better as a female that like, well, why can't he or why won't he? And it's like, you know, and so I caught some of that in my own attitude. I'm like, oh my goodness, I have an incredible husband. Like he doesn't deserve any of that. So it helped me really take a look at myself too and challenge myself in areas to grow as a as a woman and as a wife. And so I highly, highly encourage reading that book. And so with that being said, Nancy, how can people connect with you and how can they purchase a copy of it? And I know you've got it behind you, but I also have it right here. Yeah. <laughs> my, my product placement back there. Um, yeah. Uh, well, yes, of course, it's it's available on Amazon as everything is. Um, or if you prefer places like christianbook.com, or if you're lucky enough to have a bread, brick and mortar store that you can patronize, which is wonderful. Um, but you can also come to my website, my um, publisher, created a, a colorful new website. So come on over, nancypiercy.com, and it's P-E-A-R-C-E-Y, nancypiercy.com. You can um, you can uh, browse my other books too and see what else I've done. What I've, I think you mentioned Love Thy Body earlier. You can come and see my book, Love Thy Body. Yeah, that one's right and, over here, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, so you can browse the other books and see what else I've written and... Um, and and you can leave a comment too. I do I do read the comments and so that's that's fun. I don't have time to answer everyone, but I do read them all and I appreciate hearing from you. Mm-hmm.